Last week we began exploring the reason that the Bavli became the authoritative text of Jewish law and used the discussion surrounding that principle to examine the relative weight of primary sources and precedent and previous authorities' interpretation of those sources. We noted, based on the opening of the Rambam in the second paragraph of the Chodmamrim, that there is a difference between the authority given to Bet Din when it comes to their interpretation of biblical law and the authority given to Bet Din in terms of their legislation. When it comes to biblical law, the Rambam argues that a Bet Din has the authority to institute a law, or rather to suggest an interpretation, but a later Bet Din has the right, or even the obligation, to interpret the law differently if they understand the psukim, if they understand the biblical source in a different way than the original Beidin. In the second halacha, the Rambam writes that when it comes to rabbinic law, when it comes to legislation, there are limitations. And a later Beidin cannot uproot the rule of the first Beidin unless they are greater than them in terms that we left um, undefined for the moment. And we noted that while this seems ironic, one would think that biblical law would be harder to change, or the interpretation of biblical law would be harder to change than rabbinic legislation. The key to understanding this Rambam seems to be that when it comes to interpretation of biblical law, the rabbis are functioning as interpreters. But the primary source, the source to which everyone must answer, is the biblical text. And therefore, no authority can become so powerful such that no one can argue with them. However, when it comes to rabbinic law, when it comes to law in which the Beidin, in fact, instituted that rule, they are the primary source. And whenever one challenges a primary source, it's obviously much more difficult. This gap between cases in which the rabbis act as interpreters and when rabbis act as legislators, when they act as primary sources rather than um, interpreters of primary sources, led the Kesef Mishnah to introduce the question, why then do we treat the Bavli, which should just be a collection of very important precedent, of interpretations of the, uh, the biblical law, which is the primary source, why do we treat it as if it were primary and do not allow any later posaic to argue with the position of the Bavli? Similar to the way one finds in the Gemara, that the Amoraim did not argue with the positions of the Mishnah. And we noted that two gener- general trends emerged in Poskim to understand this move. One is that of the Kesef Mishnah, slightly differently, Reb Chaim, quoted by Rav Khan and Wasserman, is that simply we agreed to do this. In a fundamental level, um, the Bavli is just precedent, it's just interpretation, important pre- interpretation, but not a primary source. Um, the Chazanish, on the other hand, argued, based on his conviction that the earlier sources have better access to the truth. And as a passage elsewhere, he writes that the formation of Torah can only happen during the middle 2,000 years of, the, of world history, argues that, in fact, the reason that we accept the Bavli as a primary source is because it essentially is. Not necessarily because it is the primary source, the Torah is still the primary source in an ultimate sense, but because the Bavli has a better chance at understanding the truth than we do. And therefore we have no right to challenge it. We noted that these 
two ways of understanding what happened help us understand, in general, the way Poskin may approach precedent. The case of Mishnah, Rabbi Yosef Karo, as we noted, who believes that it is legitimate to take something which we know is not in the end of their primary text and treat it as if it is, um, ends up saying the same thing, essentially, in terms of how he wrote the Beit Yosef. That while he knows that the Rambam and the Rush and the Rif, the three main Rishonim that he takes to formulate his halachic positions, are just interpreters of the Bavli, because he assumes that he can never understand the Gemara better than the Rishonim, he will never rely on his own interpretation of the source and will act as if the Rishonim are, uh, are binding, uh, even though they are only interpreters of the Bavli. Now here you see a bit of a conflation between his own position, where he basically accepted this, um, and the Chazanish-esque position, where he believes that this is also a better way of accessing the truth. Though obviously, one would agree to accept the position that one assumes is closer to the truth. Uh, Rabbi Vadya Yosef, following that path, really does believe that that is how Shulchan Aruch um, became accepted. And quotes several very strong formulations in the Achronim um, to this effect, that the same essential process that took place in the acceptance of the Bavli took place um, in the acceptance of, uh, of Shulchan Aruch. And one finds positions like this in Poskim, both Ashkenazi and Sephardi, um, though in the Ashkenazi Poskim in general, it refers to, uh, to the Ramah and not the Beit Yosef. And in general, this, this formulation refers to Shulchan Aruch, Ramah, maybe Nosei Kalim um, as well. Um, but at any rate, that approach is easier to understand when it's about acceptance. Um, if it's really about believing that the earlier generations have the truth, so again, Chazal, that's going to be more true of Chazal um, than it is of just previous authorities, though again, in the Beit Yosef, as we noted, you see certain certain elements um, of this as well in terms of his justification for why uh, he accepted the Rishonim, um, specifically the Rambam, the, Ra- the Rush, and the Rif, uh, for the basis of his Psak. And we noted that these... Uh, models help us understand why it is that precedence is so important. On the one hand, um, sometimes we believe that precedence is important because a consensus has been reached to follow those positions, even though we know that perhaps it's not the best read of the sources. We don't necessarily know. We don't necessarily trust ourselves to understand it. But consensus is an important part of Psak, and that's one of the factors that makes precedent. Previous interpretations of the primary source is so important in the process of Psak. The other factor is that we really do believe that at some level, previous authorities may have a better access to truth than we do. And it's these two factors that lead Postkim to treat precedent with such deference. Now, it is worth noting that if one believes that the acceptance of previous authorities is just that, is merely acceptance, rather than a recognition that one is essentially forced to accept them because they reflect truth, if one takes that position, then one will be more likely to challenge precedent. In fact, 
even in the context of the Bavli, which we took as the paradigmatic case to understand this gap between uh, the authority granted to primary sources and the authority granted to previous interpretations of those primary sources, one finds that there were Rishonim that believed that this notion that, in fact, the Mishnah accepted was accepted completely by the, by the Bavli uh, was not true, and perhaps... Um, at some extent, to some extent, that might be true of the Gemara as well. The Me'iri, in the Seder HaKabbalah, in his introduction to his Perush Avot, writes as follows, now, skipping a bit, He notes that while the Mishnah was essentially considered binding by the Amoraim, he writes, with all this, the hearts were minimized from all the afflictions, and the later ones had to compile an explanation and elucidation. The reason the Gemara was written, the Bavli was written, the Yushalmi was written, was because, no matter how great, the Tanayim were, they weren't perfect. And no one person can have all the truth. And even a group of people cannot have all the truth. And therefore they write that, uh, he writes, that sometimes they tore down and fixed. When the scholars of the generation agreed that something was a strong question, they said this mission is according with only one position. Remove it from here. It's not a Mishnah. These are missing words. For perfection is not found among creations, even the best of them, to the point where the later ones could not argue with them even on some things. The Me'iri argues that there are many phrases in the Gemara that the majority of interpreters understand to mean that the Bavli is attempting to actually understand the Mishnah. So when it says Samimikan, for example, remove this from here, the Bavli is merely saying, the Amoraim are merely saying that this Mishnah is, that we have in front of us is a typo, is a mistake, but the Tanaim are right. This text is just incorrect. Similarly, Eina Mishnah. Eina Mishnah means that the Tanaim are authoritative, but this Mishnah that we think is a Mishnah is not in fact a Mishnah or Chesurim Echzera. This text is, um, is missing words, but again, we're trying to reconstruct the position of the Tanaim. The Miri doesn't understand it that way. The Miri argues that in fact, when the Gemara says, get rid of that Mishnah, it's not saying get rid of the Mishnah because it's a mistake, in the sense that the Tanaim never meant it. They're saying it's a mistake. The Tanaim can be wrong. And the Amorim, Amorim had the right and responsibility to change the Halakha, or rule differently than the Mishnah. Now this position of the Miri reflects the, method, the methodological points that we raised. If one believes that in the end of the day, the only primary source is the, mission, is, is the Torah, is Dvar Hashem, is the Word of God, and at the end of the day, we relate to the Mishnah as interpretation, then no matter how strong that interpretation is, no matter how much weight we give to that precedent, and no matter how much we agree to treat it as binding, in the end of the day, the difference between something being precedent, being interpretation of a primary text, and being a primary text, 
is whether we can assume it's sometimes wrong. And the Me'iri writes that while it seems that the Bavli accepted, and the Yerushalmi for that matter, that the Amoraim accepted the positions of the Tanaim as absolute and as binding, it's not true. Now this works very well with the position of the Kesar Mishnah that we mentioned, mentioned above. If one believes that the reason that the Amoraim accepted the Tanaim was because just that, they agreed to do so, then while in 90, maybe 95% of cases, they in fact would follow positions of the Mishnah. And indeed, when one goes through Shas, one knows that the Amoraim are very hesitant to ever argue on the Mishnah. In the end of the day, one's primary obligation is to the primary text, to the original sources. And if one believes that the interpreters, even the Tanaim, are just that, are interpreters, then under certain circumstances, one will be obligated to argue with them. Um, now, while post-game, post the Talmud, are much more hesitant, even if the Me'iri is correct, um, post and post-Talmud really do view themselves as bound, we noted already in our shiurim on that even that is not 100% clear because there was a ruah followed by the taz, la ruled that indeed if the gemara explicitly says the halacha is like X, <coughs> so then one has no right to argue with that position under any circumstances, even However, if there are extenuating circumstances, and the Bavli does seem to rule in a certain way, but it never explicitly rejects the other position, even positions that were from the Mishnah, that the Gemara ruled against, are alive, at least under extenuating circumstances, according to the Rosh and the Taz. Now here, this indicates a, admittedly, very rare application of this, but what it does indicate that at some level, um, the Orzarua viewed as much as the Stimana Talmud was a closing of a period, it was not 100% a closing of the period. And even if there's very little practical implication to this, it does indicate a model, which is that when one views something as a primary source, so then one can never argue on it. But in the end of the day, if something is interpretation, one is allowed to go back to the previous sources and understand this uh, differently. Um, now, this model presented by the Mi'iri, in terms of how he understood the Bavli, um, is introduced as well in several sources as being the position of the Vilna Gon, but not in all cases, but in certain uh, cases. Um, and in a much more mild form. Specifically, when it comes to Chusuri Mechzara, Reb David Tzvi Hafmer, in Melamed Lahovel Chela Gimel, Tshuva Siman Samach Aleph, and in the Hakdama of the Parah Shulchan, they cite from the Grah, from the Vilna Gaon, that Chusuri Mechzara does not mean, at least under all circumstances, that there were, that there's an assumption that there are words that need to be fixed, that there are typos uh, in the Mishnah, but rather it's a case in which the Gemara is asserting that while Rebbe viewed, r- ruled in accordance with a particular position, the Gemara says we must add words 
because we must reflect a different position. Now, this is not quite as extreme as the Me'iri. This is not arguing that the Amarim were ruling against the Tanaim as a entire historical period. Um, but it, what it is positing is the Amarim sometimes would argue against the Mishnah and would contend that Rebbe's position, while it does reflect a position, did not reflect the halakhically authoritative one, and therefore they would argue that one may take a different position, and it's as if this Mishnah is missing important halakhic uh, positions. Now, as we noted, at least when it comes to the Bavli, there's very little expression of these two ways of understanding the reason that it became accepted. Because in the end of the day, in 99.9% of cases, barring very extreme positions like the Orzarua and the Taz, and even that only under extenuating circumstances, posts can treat the Bavli as a primary source. Again, whether that's because it was agreed that this should be the case, or because we believe that the, that the Bavli always has the truth, in the end of the day, for all intents and purposes, we have accepted it because we do believe that under most circumstances that is the best way for truth. However, there is one position that while accepting this authority does argue that in the end of the day, this one must acknowledge that in an ideal world, one would not have done this. Um, and in fact, the fact that we accepted the Bavli is just acceptance and not a reflection of truth. Now, until now, we've talked about the fact that these two models are relatively close. Um, however, as we noted, in theory, it's possible to say that we accepted a position, um, even acknowledging that sometimes it may be wrong. Now, that doesn't seem to be the position of the Beit Yosef, who does assume that the acceptance was for a reason, and is definitely not in line with the position of the Chazanish. But if one looks at the introduction to the Dora of V.E. of Moshe Shmuel Glasner in his commentary on Chulin, one sees that, in fact, he took the consensus position and admitted that consensus does not, or a similar position to the consensus position, and acknowledged that one does not always reach the truth um, and nevertheless can be bound by that position. So the Dora V.E. writes as follows. The question that he's dealing with there um, is whether in cases where we discover that, let's say, the Bavli is incorrect, perhaps for for changes in um, in our understanding of science, where we realize that the Psakim of the Bavli were based on faulty understandings of the reality, he questions why it is that we are still bound by those positions. Now, indeed, that is a very extensive machloket amongst the poskim, with some poskim arguing that if the positions of Chazal were based on faulty understandings of mitziut, of reality, then we are no longer bound by those positions. Others argue that there's no such thing, that what seems to be a mistake in science is really our mistake, and we're the ones who are misunderstanding it. Or alternatively, what seems to be a mistake on behalf of Chazal is merely a statement about a halachic perception or interpretation of the mitziut, but not actually the mitziut, and various other variations appear in the post-scheme.
The Dora Vi, however, writes differently. And he argues that Stimata Talmud, the act of writing down the Gemara and making it binding, um, was essentially one of transforming via acceptance interpretation into a primary source. Because he writes that oral law was always so supposed to be dynamic because, as the Rambam noted, it is interpretation. Interpretation, precedent, as important as it is, is not the same as a primary text. However, he argues that the act of writing down the Bavli, of writing down Shas, was an act of transforming oral Torah into essentially written Torah, or in our formulation, precedent, interpretation, into a primary source. And therefore, what he argues is that if something is a primary source, even if it should be wrong, in the sense that the Bavli should only be an interpretation of the Torah, and not a primary source, even though that is true, the act of accepting the Bavli, of writing the Bavli down, was an act of transforming it into a primary source, and therefore, at least until Mashiach, one is obligated to listen to it, because now it has been transformed into the primary text, (coughs) as if it were the written Torah. Um, he therefore argues that when it comes, the, the Gemara sometimes writes that we don't deal with Hilchasa the Meshicha, with Halachot that will only be relevant in the time of Mashiach. The Dora V argues that the reason for this is not because we don't care about not practical Halachot, but because simply s- stated, the Halachot recorded in the Gemara, while they may be true now, once Mashiach comes, the Bavli will be transformed back into just interpretation and will no longer be binding. Just like the Rambam writes in the first halacha of Hilchot Mamrim, that any leader baked in will have the right to interpret the Torah differently. And therefore, the reason the Gemara doesn't want to rule on Hilchot Salamashicha on halachot that are not relevant in its time are because while now we may accept it as a primary text and therefore have to accept it even if we don't agree, even if we think it's a, a misinterpretation, when Mashiach comes, we won't. We will convene a betin and we will offer our own interpretations of the Torah. And therefore, there's no reason to rule on things that won't happen until the time of Mashiach, because at that point, the rulings of, of the Gemara will be important, but not binding. They will be interpretations and not primary sources. Now, the Dora V is quite radical um, because while he very explicitly, perhaps in the most strong language, believes that the act of writing down the Bavli was an act of transforming interpretation into a primary text, for him the implications are that we are therefore bound to the Bavli even if it's wrong. Meaning, even if we know it's wrong. The guess of Mishnah... The Chazunish both seem to assume that when we paskin like the Bavli, that's because we assume it's right. Either in the Chazunish's case, it is right, or in the Beit Yosef's case, we accepted it presumably because it's the most likely thing to be right. The Doravi goes farther and says, no, we can actually treat something as a primary <coughs> text even when we know it's wrong. Um, now, presumably, he won't 
take this model in any practical sense beyond the Bavli, I would assume that the Doravi would not say the same about Rishonim, that if we know a Rishon is wrong, we should follow it anyways. <coughs> follow him anyways, simply because it was accepted. Presumably that level was only accepted for the Bavli, but it does bring into sharp relief how powerful that move is to consider a source, not an interpretation, but to consider it a original, primary source. And again, as with last week, we're doing two things at once in this year. One is understanding how exactly it is that we ended up with the Bavli being considered the primary source of Halakha. But the second is using our analysis of the moves made by Postkim to justify the acceptance of the Bavli to understand the weight given to, the relative weight given to sources that are primary and interpreted to be as, and understood as primary, and those which are understood as precedent. And as we see from this analysis, in the end of the day, the fundamental difference is that primary sources are sources that, no matter what, one is bound by. Either because one assumes they are true, or simply one's bound by their authority, by dint of its authority. Interpretations, one's bound to because one believes that it points in a strong direction. It is a good indicator of the truth within the primary sources, but in the end of the day, even those interpretations must answer to the primary source. And therefore, these two factors that later post-skim have, of how do they weigh their own interpretation of the primary sources, and how did previous authorities understand those sources, in the end of the day, in theory, the most powerful of those should be how do they understand the primary sources because at the end of the day, those are the sources to which everyone is answerable. In practice, as we've noted, however, often, either because of a belief that one has no access to the truth without those previous authorities, or simply because of acceptance, we treat certain types of interpretations as if they were um, themselves the primary text that we are dealing with. And Poskim, um, who view, who consider any given authority, whether it be the Rambam, the Rush, and the Rif, the Shulchan Aruch, or any other authority, as having moved from just precedent into a certain level of primary or accepted as if it were now the original source or the main source or the authoritative body of halakha, any authority who really views that will obviously give even more weight to these previous authorities because one's treating it not as just a previous authority but as a primary primary source. Um... A few more points on on understanding how exactly we weigh uh, precedent. So there is another sugya which is which is relevant. Um, the Gemara in Sanhedrin Davav records the following discussion: Amr Safra Abba, the Gemara assumes that there are different types of mistakes. A mistake which is made by a Dayan, which is what's considered Bidvar Mishnah, 
in, shall we say, a primary source, is considered so egregious that a ruling based on it is not a ruling, and therefore it automatically reverts. However, there are other types of mistakes, which even if they are mistakes, they are in the end of the day mistakes of interpretation, what the Gemara calls shikul hadat, weighing of interpretations of a primary source. Now, the Gemara recognizes that some, one can interpret a source incorrectly in a way that essentially we have to view it as wrong halachically, but it's not as wrong as forgetting a primary text. Interpretation of a primary text is not the same as missing a text. And therefore, a mistake in what's called shikul hadat can be a mistake, but only at a certain level. It may not force apesach to be completely undone. And here again, we see this notion that forgetting a primary source is an unforgivable act. In psak, it renders the entire psak invalid. Certain types of interpretive moves, even if they're not the best interpretive move, are viewed as mistakes, but not fundamental mistakes, and therefore, under certain circumstances, can allow a psak to stand uh, even when that, that error was made. And the Gemara asked, well, what does that mean? What is Hechidami Beshikol Hadat, Amar of Papa, Kugon Trey Tanayu Tram Arai de Pligiha, Dode, Veloid Merachodol, Kimar, Velo Kimar? When you have two Tanaim who argue, or two Amaraim that argue, and the halacha was not stated conclusively like one, meaning there is no basic ruling now, there are interpretations of a previous text, so then, Vitsugan the Alma, Liba the Chadminayo, but the thrust of the suya does indeed go like one position. And you follow the position that the suya seems to go against. That's a mistake. But at the end of the day, a mistake of what I would call a mistake of interpretation rather than mistake of a missing of a basic text. And you see here in this Gemara again this distinction that there are previous authorities that are binding. There are rule, rulings that one should follow. But still, there's a difference. A mistake in, one, in which one misses a primary source is considered a fundamental mistake that overturns the psak in every way, sh- shape, and form. But if one makes a mistake in terms of which interpretation to follow, even if there does seem to be a right answer, in the end of the day, an interpretation um, can... A wrong interpretation is not as absolutely wrong. And on the flip side, a right interpretation or a correct precedent or a more weighty precedent or a more accepted precedent is not absolutely right and binding in the way a primary source would be. And therefore, one sees this same dynamic working out in this Gemara. Now, the comments of the Rishonim on this Gemara um, explain how this theoretical conversation in the Gemara plays out in terms of Psak post-Talmud. So if you look at the Balamor, the Balamor quotes two positions. He cites a pre, one position who says, He quotes an authority who says that nowadays this second model, mistakes of only interpretation, uh, don't really uh, exist. Um, 
because any position, whether it was ruled on the Gemara or even by a previous or even by a previous authority, meaning previous to the Balamor at the time of the Gonim, is considered um, absolute. And therefore, to mistaken, to take a different interpretation than the accepted one is Tab Bidvar Mishnah. And here you see the Balmor citing a position who says that line between precedent and primary source gets blurred because later interpretations move into the canon, become canonical, and therefore cannot be challenged as if they were primary themselves. The Balamor, however, argues. And he says, <laughs> He says, no, in the end of the day, later sources are just interpretations. The only type of mistake that is considered an affront on the canon is one where one goes against a position of the Mishnah, the Talmud, which is explicit with no doubt. Um, anything else would be and then he writes, Later interpretations, post-Talmudic, are the positions of the Gaonim, at best, ruling like the wrong position of the Gaonim is only Bishikul Hadat. And therefore, the Balamor contends that while this position that he cites believed that later authorities post-Talmud can move from being mere interpreters and enter the canon and be treated as if they were primary, he contends that this is not true. That line between primary, between sources that can never be challenged, and sources (coughs) that, while extremely important, extremely weighty, are in the end of the day just interpretations, the line is between Bavli, between the Talmud, and anything post-Talmudic. Uh, if you look at the, the Ravid there, he writes, The Ravid argues that no, that Chacham was correct. Namely, that if Gaonic positions um, are opposed, that can be the equivalent of a Ta'ut Bidvar Mishnah. However, he notes, and this goes back to what we noted from the Kesev Mishnah before, that is only if the Posek in question, had he known of the Gaonic position, would have changed his mind. Meaning, like the Kesev Mishnah, one can reach a position where one recognizes that fundamentally a position is just an interpretation, but accept it as if it had entered the canon. And under such circumstances, the Ravid argues that, indeed, later authorities become the virtual, virtual equivalent of canonical and not just interpretations. The Karovani Lomar, Shafil Mayacholik al and he writes that unless we have an absolutely convincing argument against a Gaon, which almost never happens, he thinks any challenge on the Gaonim would in fact be a Ta'ut Bidvar. Mishnah. Um, and again, you see this model where while the Balamor believes that only the Bavli has canonical weight, the Ravid argues that for functional purposes, there are certain previous authorities, in his case the Geonim, that in fact are treated like they are canonical, even if in truth maybe they are not. The Rush as well weighs in here.
And he writes, somewhat of a middle position, he says, I he says, look, if one doesn't even know about the Gonic position, and one finds out about it, one changes his mind. So that is a Ta'ud Bidvar Mishnah. The reason for him seems to be, though, not because you're not allowed to challenge the Gonim, but because personally, if, the, if this Poseik didn't know the Gonim, and now when he hears the Gonic position, he will change his mind, for him, that is a fundamental um, fundamental uh, mistake. And he says, that's true in any generation. However, if you have challenges to their positions, then you're allowed to follow your own position. And here you see, again, a middle position, where the Rush says that one can't accept a previous position if it's canonical, and thereby undermine his own authority, but one does not have to. Um, And that, again, highlights this notion that the question of what we treat as canon, what we treat as primary, and what we treat as interpretation is somewhat dynamic. And the more that a postage treats previous authorities as interpreters, the more he will rely on his own analysis of the sugya, and the less he'll feel bound by every position proud in previous authorities. The more he treats previous authorities as if they've entered the canon in absolute sense, the less he'll rely on his own interpretation. And this is the fundamental point that we've been developing in the previous two shiurim, um, which is that in the end of the day, poskim balance previous interpretations of, of primary sources, canonical sources, and their own interpretation of canonical sources. In the end of the day, in theory, canonical sources and the, and the interpretation thereof should have the most weight in psak. Previous interpretations are important, but in the end of the day, not as important as what the primary sources say. However, different poskim will draw the lines at different places in terms of when they view a source in practical terms, if not in fundamental ones, as having moved from just interpretation into the realm of canon, into the realm of primary sources, sources which cannot be argued against. And the question of where one draws that line is subject to machloka and somewhat dynamic. And pinning down the exact point would take many more shiurim. But the general contours of this argument, in terms of understanding the halachic process, is clear. That one must realize that all poskim are essentially balancing these two factors, as well as the other ones that we've discussed. Namely, what, is the prim- what do the primary sources say, and what, how have previous poskim understood this sugya? But the weight they give to those poskim depends on whether they view, how much they view those previous authorities as containing truth, how much they've accepted them as canonical, as binding, and all the different factors that we've talked about. And while different postmen will draw the lines in different places, that fundamental dynamic, that fundamental process of weighing 
previous authorities? How much weight do I give to them? And at what point do I stop viewing an authority as just an interpreter and as a primary source? Those are the questions that Poskim are grappling with when they're trying to formulate a halachic position. Uh, what we'll deal with next week is sort of the elephant in the room from, from the last Dushurim, which is all of this has been, the model we've been using is understanding how the Bavli got its authority, um, and using that model to understand the process of Psak post-Talmudic. In theory, though, the primary source should always have been Tanakh, should always have been, more specifically, Chuma, should have been Dvar Hashem. The question we must ask is, is in any real sense, independent interpretation of Chumash still a factor that Poskim bring to bear when they are deciding halachic questions?